All right, well, whenever we pick up uh, the Bible, um, we become time travellers. In the case of the New Testament, uh, we go back 2,000 years in time into a world which no longer exists. And as we do so, it's helpful to ask ourselves um, certain questions like, um, who wrote this uh, particular letter or book of the Bible? Why did they write it? Um, who were they writing to? What questions were they trying to answer? What problems were they trying to, to solve? And most importantly, what relevance does all of this have to my life today? And so uh, as part of our, our, our rhythm within the life of the church, this week, next week, and perhaps the week after, um, we're going to delve into a, a New Testament document called Paul's Letter to the Galatians. And we're going to answer those questions. And what I hope we will discover is that despite that this is an ancient piece of correspondence, it has a, a profound um, relevance for our lives today. In fact, I would go as far to say that if we grasp uh, what Paul is saying in Galatians, things that have quite possibly been um, uh, blurry and distorted for us in our Christian faith, will actually take on greater levels of clarity. Now, the book of Galatians um, is a, a quite a polarizing piece of writing. People either love or they hate. Galatians. I'm one of those people that love Galatians. It was one of the first books of the Bible that I, that I studied as a new Christian, and it has left an indelible mark on my life. And you might look and think, well, if that's what the book of Galatians does to you, I think I'm going to stay away from it. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that Galatians is the best book in the Bible. He says, this is my letter. I am married to it. Some people like to marry their pets nowadays. or they like to, People are marrying themselves. Wow. So, um, so uh, um, Martin Luther was a bit of a forerunner in a whole lot of areas. He married himself to the book of Galatians. Um, somebody else has called Galatians the Christian Magna Carta of liberty. So this is a book that's um, held in esteem by many, many people. But Galatians is also often disliked for a number of reasons. And some people think it's kind of too intellectual. Uh, it's very, very heady. Other people um, dislike the level of emotionalism. Um, Paul's um, heart and passion kind of comes through every, every page. Um, other people don't like it because it's very, very personal. Paul talks a lot about himself. Um, he talks about his weaknesses. He talks about his ill health. Um, and, he t and, he, and he works very hard in this letter to defend himself and his message. Now, if you're thinking, which I hope you are, you should be thinking, wow, I thought this was the Bible. I thought the Bible was God's word. And it's kind of got all of this emotion in there and it's a lot of Paul is in here and it's kind of coming from Paul's academic, intellectual um, um, history. Can I just tell you this morning that the Bible is just like Jesus. Jesus was incarnate. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And the Bible is exactly the same. The Bible is 
fully God and fully human. And it's this mix of divinity and humanity. And if you just think that the Bible is kind of God just dropped it out of heaven and it's all divine, I'm sorry. The Bible is not a good book for you. And you've got to understand that the Bible is this incredible mix of divinity and humanity. And that's why in the book of Galatians you find intellectualism and emotionalism and you find Paul's personal life all wrapped into it, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Brenda. Now, one of the other reasons that people don't like uh, the book of uh, Galatians is because they think it's too spiritual. Uh, Paul talks about living by the Spirit, and he talks about uh, the indwelling Christ, um, Christ within us. And for some people, all that's a little bit too mystical. It's a little bit charismatic and Pentecostal, and uh, it's very esoteric. And then for other people, it's just a very, very controversial book because Paul wasn't very tactful or tolerant. In fact, in this book, he is incredibly argumentative. Now, some of us think that as, as Christians, we should, um, um, we should be nice and um, we should agree with one another. Now, I think, by and large, that is true. But we need to understand that there are primary and there are secondary issues. Back in the, in the, in the 1500s in the church... One of the big issues, the big debate was this. How many angels can you fit on the end of a pin? <laughs> so there's big debates and, and big splits over how many angels can you fit on the end of a pin? Now, to me, that's not even a secondary issue. That's not even within the top 500 issues for me. But back then, people made it a big, a big issue. Now, regarding secondary issues, I think we should just learn to agree to disagree. There are some things that you think uh, uh, hold to and, and you value those things. And I might disagree with that. And I go, that's fantastic. You think what you want to think and I'll think what I want to think and we'll probably, um, you know, change uh, what we think over a period of time. The 25-year-old me would look at the, I've got to say, the 56-year-old me and go, oh my God, I wonder if that man's even a Christian. And then the 56-year-old me looks at the 25-year-old me and goes, oh my God. What was he thinking? So hopefully we're all on a journey of change. What I thought as a 25, 26-year-old and what I now think of as a 55-year-old is very different regarding secondary and other ancillary issues. But when it comes to primary issues, we should engage in, in honest and at some time, on, on some occasions fiery debate. And in Galatians, Paul is expressing concern over primary issues. This is not peripheral stuff. This is of life and death importance to Paul. And there are certain truths without which we end up losing the gospel. And that's why Paul is so incredibly passionate in this book. So we're going to begin today by providing some background about Paul who wrote this letter and why 
it needed to be written. Are you with me? Good. So this letter, and if you read through the book of Galatians, which I would encourage you to do during, during the week, you'll find these themes that I'm going to talk about uh, this morning. This letter takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis and the father of the Jewish people, a man by the name of Abraham, with whom God had made a covenant. We learned about that last year. Covenant, most beautiful thing. Uh, God had made a covenant with Abraham and also gave this man, Abraham, a promise. And this promise was that through Abraham, one of his descendants, one of his descendants, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. This descendant would be uh, the Messiah, the one who would come and would put the world to right. The Messiah would come and fix up the mess of our lives and the mess of this world. About 400 years after that promise is given, God gives Israel, Abraham's children, the law. And according to Galatians and other books of the Bible, you will find that the law was given for two primary reasons. Firstly, the law was given to restrain sin. The, the moral um, uh, standards which we find summarized in the Ten Commandments were given to help people differentiate and see the difference between good and bad. And if people would just keep some of the rules some of the time, then society would be more livable and harmonious. Secondly, God gave the law to reveal sin. It's by the straight edge of the law that we actually discover how crooked we are. And the purpose of the commandments was to exasperate us and help us see that despite our best efforts, none of us can live up to the demands of the law. That each and every one of us are actually sinners and therefore we all need a saviour. But as we've learned over the last uh, few weeks, the Pharisees who were Israel's religious leaders turned the law into the means by which people were made right with God. The law was no longer a restraint or a revealer of sin. It was uh, turned into the way of right standing with God. And what the Pharisees demanded is that people would, should follow every detail of the law and then some. And these Pharisees placed impossible burdens upon people. You must do this and you must do that. You can't go here, you can't go there. You can't eat this and you can't eat that. And these Pharisees went all over the Roman world declaring that anyone who wanted to be saved needed to take upon themselves what is called the yoke or the burden of the law. And the mark or the sign of coming under the burden or the yoke of the law uh, and that you were part of God's special community was circumcision. I'm not sure how they monitored this, but if you were a male and you'd had your foreskin removed, you were in. But if you were a male and you had a foreskin, you were out. Talking about foreskins, 
Nice little segue. This is a true story. There's an, an Afrikaans preacher uh, who was preaching in an English-speaking church, so English wasn't his first language. You all suddenly came awake then. You're all kind of like nodding off. Talk about circumcisions and foreskins. And they whoa, where's this going to go? You know, this Afrikaans guy is preaching in English, which is his second language. And at the end of his sermon, he comes to the end of his sermon and he says, I believe that the Lord is here this evening. And he wants to anoint every man's foreskin. <laughs> and his wife is in the front row looking incredibly embarrassed and she's going, no, no, no. And, she, and he goes, becomes even more determined. He goes, yes, yes, yes. The Lord is here tonight and he wants to anoint every man's foreskin. That would have been a really, really interesting close to a meeting, wouldn't it? So these Pharisees looked at those who weren't circumcised, those who hadn't taken on the burden of the law as sinners and someone whom the coming Messiah would judge. Then Jesus, who is Abraham's long-awaited descendant, the one through whom the world would be blessed and put to right. The Messiah comes and he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, I've come to set you free from having to fulfill every detail of the law and its 1,613 commandments and all of the other rules and the regulations that the Pharisees have added. And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, we hear some of the most beautiful words ever spoken. Jesus said, Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And I could imagine all of those Jews who'd been living under the oppression of the law, that would have been life-giving. However, the very first Christians didn't really grasp the scope of Jesus' message. But there was one guy who did get it, and his name was Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, we read his last sermon. He gives a clear and succinct um, overview of the entire Old Testament story. And he brings in uh, the consequences of, of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And there was probably only one other man that was there that day listening to Stephen speak, that actually understood the, the implications of this sermon. And that was a man who was a deeply committed Pharisee by the name 
of Saul. And Saul recognised that Stephen was saying, in Jesus, God has brought an end to the three pillars of Judaism. That Jesus has brought an end to the law. Because we are now saved by trusting Jesus Christ alone. He is the way of salvation. That uh, God in Christ has put an end to the temple. The temple was the place where people would go to meet with God. But now, according to Stephen, uh, people could now meet and experience God through the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the gift given by Jesus. And thirdly, Peter, uh, sorry, um, uh, Stephen was saying that the sacrificial system has come to an end. No more animal sacrifices are required because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. You with me this morning? Saul understood that Stephen was saying that everything Judaism was founded upon had actually coalesced and centered in on the person of Christ. And he was absolutely furious with what he heard. So he sanctions the execution of Stephen. And he felt it was his duty to silence this new movement before it could gain any further traction. And this man Saul went on a tirade to wipe out the church because it was a threat to everything he held to be true about God. And Acts chapter 9, it tells us that Saul, full of angry threats and rage, wanted to murder the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Saul wanted to capture all of the believers he found, both men and women, and drag them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. I think this gives us a picture of what religious fundamentalism is like. Religious fundamentalism in any shape or form wants to destroy those who do not agree with it. But the great thing is, the story of Saul doesn't stop there. In the next verse, in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9, it says, Just outside the city, a brilliant light flashing down from heaven suddenly exploded all around Saul. This is like a Hollywood movie. And falling to the ground, he heard a booming voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, Saul replied, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the victorious, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city where you will be told what you are to do. The resurrected Jesus appears to Saul, and in a moment, his life is turned around. Three days later, Saul is baptised, and it goes on to tell us that within the hour, he was in the synagogue, preaching about Jesus and proclaiming, Jesus is the Son of God. And those who heard him were astonished, saying amongst themselves, isn't this the Saul who furiously persecuted those in Jerusalem who called on the name of Jesus. And so for about 10 years, um, this man Saul goes into the desert 
to recalibrate his heart and his mind. And during that, that, that time in the desert, God speaks to him about becoming a messenger, about taking the story of Jesus to the Roman world. And in that quiet place, God directly downloads into, into Saul an understanding of the gospel of grace. And so while Saul is in this place of obscurity in the multicultural city of Antioch, and we learn about Antioch whenever it was, in this city something very, very unique was happening. Large numbers of, of Jews and for the first time large numbers of non-Jews are becoming Christians. And the church in the Jerusalem, who kind of regard themselves as being kind of the headquarters of, of the church, hear what's taking place in Antioch. So they send down um, Barnabas. And um, Barnabas is sent to check things out. And when he goes to Antioch, he's absolutely amazed by what he discovers. Jews and non-Jews are eating together and worshipping together. And so this man Barnabas decides to stay in Antioch, but he desperately needs support. And he remembers Saul. And he goes and he tracks him down and he invites Saul to come and assist him in leading and teaching this Jewish Gentile church. Now around this time, Saul undergoes a name change. He drops the Jewish name Saul, which means significant. And he adopts the Roman name Paul, which means small. And I just think it's a beautiful metaphor of the change that has taken place in this once religious man's life. He once thought he was incredibly insignificant and incredibly important, and now he's come to a place of, of humility and realising that it's not about him, it's about God. So one day as uh, the leaders of the church in Antioch are praying, God speaks and he commissions Barnabas and Paul to become missionaries. And so they jump on a ship and they visit a number of places, including a region called Galatia, which is modern-day southern Turkey. And they go from city to city around this region of Galatia telling people about Jesus. And many non-Jews respond to the Jesus story and new churches are established in these cities. And Paul and Barnabas stay for a while. They instruct these new Christians in the gospel of grace. And as a result, um, their lives are, are transformed and they're characterized by freedom and joy, and God does incredible miracles um, in their midst. And after a while, uh, Barnabas and, 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 and Paul leave Galatia, and then they return to Antioch to report back to the church what has happened on their missionary journey. And one day, um, Peter, one of the original 12 apostles, comes to Antioch for a visit. And Peter really enjoys being part of a church where Jews and non-Jews are eating and worshipping together. That is until one day a group of Pharisees who've converted to Christianity, who are called Judaizers, arrive at this church. 
And the Judaizers were a movement in the early church that embraced a hybrid form of Christianity. Whilst they accepted the message of Jesus, they also believed that true Christianity required obedience to the law, circumcision, abstinence from certain foods, keeping certain days as sacred, and separating oneself from non-Jewish people. And the pressure that these Judaizers placed on the Jewish Christians at Antioch was so intense that even Peter um, falls back into following Jewish customs. And when Paul sees what's going on, he confronts Paul, uh, Peter. They've got to remember, Peter is the guy. Peter is the one. He's the one that's been with Jesus. And Paul confronts Peter to his face and calls him out for being a hypocrite. And I want to tell you, the Judaizers were so furious with Paul. And so what they did was they made it a point of going on their own missionary journeys to places like Galatia. And they'd visit the churches that Paul had established and they would question his credentials and question um, and challenge the validity of Paul's message. And what these Judaizers did was they accused Paul of watering down and simplifying the gospel because he was a people pleaser and he was afraid of persecution. The Judaizers would go into these churches, such as the ones in Galatia, and they present a version of the gospel, which was Jesus plus keeping the law. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus keeping kosher dietary requirements. And Jesus plus observing special religious days. And for the Judaizers, the gospel was a Jesus plus message. And when Paul gets wind that these Judaizers had turned the Galatian Christians against him and his version of the gospel, and that they'd taken up um, the, the yoke and the burden of the law, Paul, with his emotions racing, sits down and he dictates um, a letter to a scribe who writes down his words on a piece of parchment and his pen, what is called Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this is how he begins his letter. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I am not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preached to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other 
good news than the one you welcomed. Let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. What a way to start a letter. (laughs) Then he goes on to say, Oh, foolish Galatians. The J.B. Phillips version says, Oh, dear idiots of Galatia. (laughs) Who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Christ, uh, Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. And then he finishes the letter with these words. Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. In Galatians, Paul is primarily addressing the persistent religious problem. And that is good people trying to please God through their own self-effort. And he identifies legalism as a religious system that combines Jesus with other additional requirements. Now, legalism changes with each generation and and each denomination. Do you know how many people you've got... How many people here have got false teeth? Who's going to own up to that? All right. We're not looking. Okay, you put up your hand. Do you know that if, if, if you were a Christian in the 1800s, you couldn't wear false teeth? You'd lose your salvation. Christians weren't allowed to have false teeth in the 1800s. God forbid, because false teeth were a sign of pride. And you should be humble enough to walk around looking <laughs> so scary. Today, legalism has a very different face to what legalism looked like in Paul's day or in the 1800s. But can I say to you, if you embrace a Christianity which is Christ plus anything else, Christ plus you have to belong to a particular church or 
It's Christ plus you have to vote for a particular political party. Or it's Christ plus you have to obey uh, prohibitions against wearing makeup, um, swearing, um, smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. Or you have to pray, you, you, you must read your Bibles, you must give money to the church, and you must attend church in order to maintain your right standing with God. I want to tell you this morning, you are a slave to legalism. Now let's be honest, I'll be honest with you, there's a little bit of Pharisee in me. A little bit of Pharisee in all of us. It's natural human instinct to think that we can somehow impress God by what we do. Let's not pretend. We used to sing a song. We were part of a group church. We used to sing a song, There is no Pharisee in me. And I look back and think, what a bunch of Pharisees we were. (laughs) Thinking that we were the only group within Christendom that didn't have rules and regulations. Boy, when I look back, boy, did we have rules and regulations you wouldn't believe. For Paul, legalism, as you, we're going to unpack the book of Galatians, legalism is the enemy of liberty. And Jesus came to set us free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But just before the Christians in Galatia could think, woohoo, um, that means I can do whatever I want. I'm free from legalism. Paul goes on to identify another enemy of liberty. And that enemy is called license. License is when we live from a place of selfishness or self-centeredness. Some um, uh, translations of the Bible call this selfishness or self-interest, the sinful nature or the works of the flesh kind of how some Bible is translated. And Paul in the book of Galatians says, if you embrace a life of self-interest, you are also a slave, just as much as someone who has embraced a life of legalism. Because license, doing your own thing, is just another form of slavery. Liberty is not doing um, what you want. Liberty is not the freedom to sin, it is the freedom not to sin, to decide not to sin. That is the freedom that God wants for us. And so Paul's argument in the book of Galatians is that legalism and license are both the enemy of liberty. But can I tell you what the greatest enemy is of those two within the church? It's not license, it's legalism. That's the biggest problem within the church. It's not the morality stuff. It's the legalism stuff. That's the problem. And Galatians, Paul teaches us that the key to freedom from legalism and license is living by the Spirit. Two key verses. He says, When you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under... Obligation to the law of Moses. Did you hear that? When you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. 
Do you know why people and churches create rules and regulations? Because we don't have a clue how to walk by the Spirit. That's why. The church is led by leaders who don't know what it is to walk by the Spirit. So what we do is we create rules and regulations to keep everything tight and in order. But that's not all. Paul also says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives that you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That's the license part, legalism and license. The solution to both legalism and license is letting the Holy Spirit guide your life. Hopefully there's some pennies dropping. And that, my friends, is why this letter is so significant. God is inviting us into a life of freedom, a life of liberty. And liberty from legalism and liberty from a license are both the byproduct of living by the Spirit. And this is what the liberated life looks like. In Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Now use your freedom to serve one another in love. What was the point of the law? What was the, what was the purpose of the law? What was it trying to do? To get people to love, to help people. That was the summation of the... Remember Jesus sums up the law? Love God, love your neighbour yourself. And when we come and harness our life with the Spirit of God, we don't need laws and rules and regulations to protect us from legalism. And when the Holy Spirit comes and lives on the inside of us, we don't have to fear about, about living in a moral life because the Holy Spirit will lead us into a life of love. If you want a really good um, expression or, or uh, symbolism of this, look at the, the story in Luke 15 of the, of the parable of the, um, the uh, prodigal son. Two sons. One was into license the other was into legalism. It is a good example. I'm pleased I thought of that. <laughs> it's, great, it's not in my notes either. Wow. I must be led by the Spirit. Can I tell you this morning, if you want a beautiful life, if you want to live a free life, if you're tired of the religious nonsense that we get sucked, it, sucked up into. Paul's letter to the Galatians is for you. It's fantastic. It's so good. You get happy. You get happy. You, can't, you lighten up and you start living the life that you're told you should be living but you could never could live because... You've harnessed yourself, you've yoked yourself to the Spirit of God. And you begin to hear His voice and obey Him, and it's good. So can I encourage you, read through the book of Galatians. Let it speak to you. Hopefully I've provided a bit of a framework to help you um, look at this book a little, a, a, a little bit in a bit more nuanced way. And uh, in your life groups this week, enjoy uh, unpacking this, this book and have fun doing so. Amen?